More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast. We've got a couple of guests coming your way. Uh, Heather McDonald at 1.30 in about, uh, what, 25 minutes or so from now. And then Julie Kelly, who has been great on January 6th and more uh, in the third hour of this program. Um, I'm going to duck out in the third hour about 30 minutes early, Buck, because I'm going to go to Chicago. I know, I know. Last time you went to Chicago, Buck, you had never been, if I remember correctly. There was a shooting at the uh, at the park, right? Just a few hours after you were there in Millennium Park. Two hours after we were there, yes. Uh, the food was amazing. It's a beautiful city. I love it. It just has a crime problem. I'm going to a family wedding there on Saturday, so uh, I'll be up there for a couple of nights. Uh, so uh, so that should be entertaining. Okay, Buck, I want to uh, circle back around on the way we finished the first hour because several of you. Uh, reached out and pointed out what I think is actually really important here. And I haven't seen uh, anybody make this argument. And I credit, as I always do, this audience, again, 800-282-2882, will also take some of your calls. A lot of intelligent people out there. It's a big audience. A lot of intelligent, creative thinkers out there. Buck, let's kind of go down the path here of the cocaine and why it matters. They shut down the White House because they were concerned this was anthrax, which is how we became aware that this story existed in the first place. They knew they had found a white powder. They were concerned that it might be anthrax. They shut it down. If the White House, which is using its media allies to say, we may never know who brought this cocaine into the White House, if they are going to make that argument, then, Buck, it raises this question. That would then mean that if someone had brought anthrax into the White House, if this had been determined to be a legitimate terror attack, that the White House wouldn't be able to uncover who brought anthrax into the White House. I don't believe that's true. But if it is true, it would mean that the most secure building that a residence in the United States is actually so insecure that someone could bring in anthrax undertake a legitimate terror attack inside of the White House, and we would be unable to know who did it. So this, to me, we got a lot of people who work in the White House press corps who listen to this show. I would love to hear Corrine Jean-Pierre pressed, wait a minute, you thought this might be anthrax. Does that mean that someone could bring anthrax into the White House, institute a legit terror attack, and the Biden administration is telling us it would be impossible to figure out who that person was? That's a really good angle that deserves to be explored because I think not only one would it be awful if it were true, but it also exposes the illegitimacy of the argument and the deceitfulness of it to argue to the American public, oh, we may never know who brought this cocaine in. Do you think they will ever tell us who did it? I do not. I think the pressure should be ratcheted up to the extent that this should be significant. And let me say this. I'm wait, not wait, 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 hold on, hold yeah, on, yeah. hold on. Do yeah, you yeah. think they're actually going to tell us, though? You think we're going to find out? I think that it is. if it's Hunter, Buck, 
I think they could spin it if it's Hunter. And I said as I finished off the first hour, the evidence to me actually starts to make, given it's a VIP entrance, given uh, that we know, I saw someone say on, on social media, a funny analogy, they were like, this is like McDonald's saying when they had hamburgers stolen, we have no idea who might have stolen the hamburgers, and like the hamburglar, you know, like sitting right out there on the on the side of the building, you know, like oh, I don't know who took the hamburgers either. Um, if you have a drug addict in the White House who has consistently been using drug addicts, documenting it recklessly, I think the number one suspect of who might bring cocaine into the White House is clearly Hunter Biden. If it's Hunter, I think they might come out, Buck, and say. This is this is what addiction does. The president loves well, that's his the playbook. Son. The yeah. president loves his son. The whole that's what they always they always say something along those lines. Whenever we find out more about the extent of Biden family corruption, which is what is so important here, they always pretend that this is about yes. some personal addiction. animus toward Hunter. I don't really care how many strippers Hunter Biden Agreed. hangs out with. You know, that's his I don't own, care how much drugs but, he does. The fact that he has a security clearance should trouble every American. You know, think about this, Buck. They are arguing right now to the American public. Donald Trump having documents, years-old documents, in his private residence under Secret Service protection in locked private areas of his club is such an American security threat that he should go to prison for the rest of his life. While they are simultaneously allowing Hunter Biden, whom we know has deep and extensive ties to the Chinese Communist Party that he has sold for millions of dollars in ill-begotten gains, who is also a drug addict who is engaged in reckless behavior uh, both in his personal and private lives, he should be able to get on Air Force One and go to Camp David and hang out with his dad and hear every single significant American security uh, uh, issue going on. And he should be able to just come in and out, gallivant through the White House whenever he wants. Yeah. And that's this not is a why security the Chinese threat. give him millions of dollars. Yes. Play, right. Yes. We all, right. This is why, because he's he's like the perfect vessel for influence peddling and perhaps even information transfer. Correct. It's not something in else fact, that Buck, anyone's really talking about. You were about. in the CIA. Can you think of a better potential asset if you were China than the drug-addled, reckless uh, son of the President of the United States who is so dementia-riddled that he has no idea what's going on? I can't think of any more of a security threat than Hunter Biden being allowed to hang out for all of these top-secret uh, things that are going on on a regular basis with his dad who has no idea what he's saying from one moment to the next. I mean, if you were... Uh, in charge of recruiting assets, Buck. Can you think of a better asset? Like, if if China had the Hunter Biden equivalent, would we not want to do everything we could to get our fingers into Hunter Biden's world if it was China? This is why no one is... No one looks at China, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party uh, carve-out who was sending him money. I'm like, what are they doing? They're so silly. Why yeah, would they right? give Hunter? No, the problem is Hunter Biden taking the money because we all know what he's offering in response. It's not what, what Burisma, this is the crazy part that everyone needs yes. to remember. That was money well spent. The Chinese Communist Party bribes to Hunter money well spent from their perspective. Oh, yes. It's a, it's, it's a perfect, uh, a perfect person to be compromising in that way. I would love if I were uh, trying to corrupt the Chinese government to have the equivalent of Hunter Biden that we could be corrupting if Kim Jong-un had a son in North Korea who was as incompetent as Hunter Biden and we could give him a few million dollars and know everything that was going on in the inner reaches of the uh, North Korean government. That would be money well spent by our Chinese, I mean, by our security apparatus. The Chinese know what they're doing. Ukraine knew what they were doing. The fact that we're still allowing this guy to have unfettered access to top American secrets through his dementia-addled dad while trying to put Donald Trump in prison for the rest of his life because of paper storage disputes is maybe the most uh, compelling sign of a two-tier justice system that has ever existed in the history of American justice. Yes, and yet I have been perhaps a little salty and a little cynical all along, but I've said 
They're not going to, Hunter's not going to, I mean, and it, I think it was surprising for people because it was so blatant, the, the cover up sweetheart deal thing that Hunter got. But that's why when I look at this, at this, uh, cocaine situation, there's, this is too much of a liability for the powers that be to let this get taken to its fruition, taken to the end point here of who is responsible for this. So they will, the system will cover it up. And this is the same reason, like people that want to understand what's really, what was really going on with the Epstein thing? Like, how is it that that guy was able to get it? Well, once you see that his whole game was compromising in the most, you know, dead to rights, it's all over for you kind of way, incredibly powerful, wealthy people, then he was able to manipulate aspects of, and we still don't have the full answers on that one. But once you see the weak points in the system and the manipulation that is possible, None of this stuff really becomes as surprising anymore. And I just think that that's maybe the, the only way we find out who the cocaine belongs to. Was there a cocaine bear movie as an aside? Yes. Didn't they make a cocaine bear movie recently? Uh, I mean, obviously no bears in the White House, but um, I never saw that movie. I wonder if it was worth watching. The only way we find out is if it's someone who is so low level that they will feed that person to the wolves uh, publicly. And, you know, that's the only way. But I, I, even then, I don't, I don't see it happening. I think they're going to say we could never know. We'll never know who the real cocaine baggy person was. If that's true, and it could be, that's where the media needs to grill Corrine Jean Pierre and just say, okay, pretend this was anthrax instead. We shut down the White House for people out there who say, oh, it's just cocaine. Why should we care about that much? Well, they shut down the White House because they were concerned it was anthrax and a terror attack. They're telling us that they wouldn't be able to figure out who brought anthrax into the White House if they're telling us they can't find cocaine. Second part on this, Buck. You may be right about low-level staffer, and this is where the Democrats play the game well. They'll have some low-level staffer say, oh my God, I brought cocaine, I've had an addiction issue with cocaine, I'm going to go to rehab, and then you know what will happen, Buck? That low-level staffer will come out and get a $250,000 a year job somewhere in the Democrat Party sinecures where they're taken care of going forward, right? That's what would end up happening uh, because there won't be any prosecution. There won't be any significant crime brought. Somebody will say, hey, hey, you know, for the good of the party, will you fall on the sword, 25-year-old? And the 25-year-old will say yes, say that he or she has an addiction issue. Uh, They will uh, then get, go to, you know, rehab, whatever it is, and then get a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar job and be snorting coke off uh, off off strippers, uh, Hunter Hunter Biden style, uh, within a few months. You remember this? You're gonna hold this in your back pocket, Jack. The yeah. old Potomac two step. That's how they play the game, man. You know, sometimes you gotta with the Democrat machine. Yeah, maybe you fall on your sword, but they'll patch you up and they'll give you some gig at MSNBC afterwards, or you'll get some sinecure some post somewhere where you're overpaid you're doing a bs job and no one cares that's how that's how they do it this is very effective i would know it's very powerful tool they have but i would bet it's hunter because ultimately buck i think this was a uh i could see hunter coming in on his phone this is my if i were constructing how this happens hunter who has no respect for white house security because he believes he's above all law is on the phone with somebody on his cell phone as he's coming in, and he recognizes that he's looking for something in his pocket, and he's probably uh, under the influence of a substance, because I don't buy the fact that Hunter Biden is suddenly clean and doesn't use any drugs at all anymore. Um, And he reaches into his pocket to look for something, pulls stuff out, puts it on a shelf, doesn't pay attention to what he's taken out of his uh, pocket because he's on a phone call, not paying attention, no one's speaking to him, just keeps walking right through. And then, you know, 45 minutes, an hour later, somebody suddenly says, oh, my so, God, there's a baggie of white powder here. If it's Hunter. Yeah. Does that does he get does he get bagged, so to speak? This is where, Buck, they are sitting around right now. Ordinarily, I think they're, it's Hunter. He has an addiction. They would come out with that. I think it would probably kill his plea agreement because technically under his plea agreement, he has to submit to two years of drug testing. So, and if he tests positive, he goes to jail. So if they come out with someone else, I actually think the most likely thing is it's a random 25-year-old who is low-level and says, oh, it was me. I brought cocaine into the White House. Ah, uh, man. This is because if it were 
Hunter taking the fall for it, and that deals that strikes that down throws his the plea, plea agreement plea out. Deal. I think Buck, if, if he, that if were to happen, with Coke. then people would start to think that this was actually want to get really crazy here. It's a Friday, everybody. A Democrat deep state plot to finally push Biden aside by having Hunter finally be. Oh my gosh, he's he's Clay's excited. He's sticking the oh, landing. I on love. This one. I love. This is this is CIA Buck. This is what if it wasn't Hunter. And they actually just planted cocaine in the White House because they knew that everybody would just presume it's Hunter. Now that would now who would be the the that would be the DNC going next level. Uh, I don't. I think it's probably just Hunter with the cocaine because we know Hunter has cocaine all the time. But that would be unbelievable because none of us would believe that it was anybody other than than Hunter. I think you're never you going to find be out who CIA it is. director. That's a hell of a plot. I think you're never going to find out who it is, but we'll see. Make it would make a great chapter for the novel. We got to start writing some spy thrillers. That would that's an amazing. I I love that. I love that idea. I agree. It's quite a situation. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of loving ideas, I also love the idea of saving you guys a lot of money. Uh, you can save up to $900 a year right now if you get hooked up with Pure Talk. You know, my own 15-year-old, it's about to be 16, my own 15-year-old's away at camp right now. He has a Pure Talk phone. We stay in touch with him, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brothers, with his Pure Talk phone. We rely on it for him to be able to let us know how his camp is going during the course of this summer. It's an incredible offer right now. 20 bucks a month, unlimited talk, text, now 50% more 5G data, plus a mobile hotspot, great value, 20 bucks a month. It's why we love the company, Pure Talk. They also happen to be veteran-owned, only hire the best customer service team based right here in the good old USA. Most families saving $1,000 a year while enjoying the most dependable 5G network in America. Dial pound 250, say Clay and Buck to make the switch to Pure Talk. You'll save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, Dial pound 250, say Clay and Buck, make the switch to Pure Talk today. Helping you separate truth from fiction every single weekday. The Clay, Travis, and Buck Sexton Show. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it it would have been been juicy. The podcast would have taken a a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Clay just took off for the airport. We've got our friend Julie Kelly with us. She is an author and a journalist. Her new Substack, which I'm going to subscribe to, I highly recommend you do the same, is Declassified with Julie Kelly. Uh, Julie, I look forward to reading it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Buck, for mentioning my new Substack, and I look forward to having you as a subscriber. Thanks a lot. 
So tell me about the focus on criminal justice from the powers that be in Washington, D.C. I mentioned the just gut-wrenching story of this uh, interpreter, and there's people can see the photos. I mean, this guy was out outside the wire with U.S. military for over a decade and then was was brought to America, as was the promise made to people who did that. And he's killed by, I mean, a group of, of, you know, it looks like teenagers in the video. And then you've got that happening, but also the prosecution is very, very strict on anybody involved in January 6th. Like, they need to be locked up forever. Exactly. So the main prosecutor in Washington, D.C. is a man named Matthew Graves. He was a Biden campaign advisor and then appointed uh, to serve as D.C. U.S. Attorney by Joe Biden in the fall of 2021. Now, Matthew Graves is in the unusual position of prosecuting both federal and local crimes in Washington, D.C. However, to your point, Buck, his fixation on the four-hour disturbance now two and a half years ago, as he continues to round up capital sightseers, Uh, Most of the new charges have nothing to do with assaulting police or vandalizing the building. This is back to obstruction and civil disorder, trespassing charges, etc. At the same time, Matthew Graves is allowing Washington, D.C. to descend into the Wild West, Uh, you know, violent chaos. Every month, Uh, there are many of the crimes, including carjackings, are at all-time highs. They had 10 fatal shootings the first five days of July, um, including this Afghani uh, interpreter, also a high school wrestling coach who was in Washington, D.C. for a professional development conference, killed at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, so in, in meantime, as he has, you know, uh, close to 100% prosecution rate, of the cases brought to him by D.C. police. So Matthew Graves is not just, you know, under fire and should be on this side of the aisle for his selective political prosecution of Trump supporters, but also is taking heat for uh, the rising uh, violent crime wave in Washington, D.C. Isn't it the case that in D.C. they were the the D.C. City Council tried to pass a bill that would have made a lot of very serious crimes even less uh, less strongly punished and less aggressively prosecuted. And then Biden, like, basically didn't, or the, the Senate Democrats didn't stand in the way of the Senate, I believe it was, shooting it down. Right? Or was it the House? I can't remember now. I believe it was the Biden, Biden came out under pressure. Um, you know, to not allow the D.C. Council to minimize and basically decriminalize a lot of these violent offenses. Um, it was the Senate, like, by the way, just so everyone knows. The Senate voted to overturn a D.C. law enacted uh, that they, they the Democrats say to improve police accountability. Julie, it would have done things like send people to prison for less time for carjacking, which has like tripled in the last five years in D.C., Right. So, I mean, Matthew Graves is not solely to blame, of course. This is what we're seeing in major cities across the country. And it's it's so not only are the political leaders decriminalizing of violent offenses, their police forces are bleeding officers. And that's certainly the case in Washington, D.C. There was a report out today that even uh, Metropolitan Police Department is moving officers from violent areas to safer areas and this is probably to keep their officers in the ranks because they've had such attrition over the past few years especially since 2020 like a lot of major cities so of course it's this mixed message but the bottom line is that matthew graves is responsible for enforcing the laws in washington dc and not trespassing laws not parading in the capitol which he's charged his office is charged over 900 americans with um, but for, you know, gun crimes and carjackings, to your point, which is out of control in Washington, D.C., and, of course, spilling out into the suburbs. So, um, you know, he needs to be held accountable uh, for what's happening in Washington, D.C., and his selective prosecution of January 6th. And, of course, 
according to the IRS whistleblower, Matthew Graves, declining to consider any charges against Hunter Biden for his income tax crimes committed in 2014 and 2015 in Washington, D.C. You know, I just got this breaking news alert from CNN, Julie, speaking of January 6th and and, uh, the 2020 election. A disciplinary committee has Mm -hmm. officially recommended Rudy Giuliani be disbarred in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. for his efforts on behalf of, of Donald Trump. I, I think it's it's important for people to see that this they're using the criminal justice system to go after people uh, involved in January 6th, but they're also using the legal and legal system and legal circles, if you will, professionally to punish lawyers who were taking up the Trump side of things in 2020. That's right. It's what the California Bar Association uh, is also attempting to do with John Eastman, who, of course, prepared the memo suggesting that Mike Pence um, could halt the certification of the Electoral College count on January 6th. So they are also there's actually a well-funded organization who are targeting any of the lawyers. Um, and of course, we've seen them target Sidney Powell. Uh, Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, um, any of the attorneys who were lawfully performing their job as counsel to the president uh, and filing lawsuits to uncover election fraud in these swing states. So that's just one part of the, I mean, just this egregious and very well-funded, well-coordinated apparatus to punish anyone, whether it's Donald Trump, his attorneys, or a voter of his who walked into a public building on a Wednesday afternoon, took selfies in the rotunda and left 10 minutes later. Um, This is, uh, and of course this will, is not anywhere close to concluding. And Buck, as you know, we've talked about numerous times, uh, will reach its apex when special counsel Jack Smith indicts Donald Trump, probably some of his attorneys, possibly some White House aides, and even maybe a few Republican congressmen for the events of January 6th. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Um, so that's, I was going to say, we, we know you believe that they're going to, the special counsel is going to have a January 6th related charge against Donald Trump, Julie, but now you're telling me that it may, it may be a whole really, uh, Trump inner circle prosecution bonanza of sorts. Um, I, I, I just, how does that play out? Because they're also making it harder for all these individuals to get lawyers to defend them. Yes. Well, look at Walt Nauta, who is the um, so-called valet. He really struggled to find a local Florida attorney. Of course, since it's being prosecuted in southern Florida, he has an attorney, Stanley Woodward, who's defended other January 6th um, defendants. But he also needed uh, a Florida lawyer and finally got someone to sign on um, this week. But look, Buck, it has to be more people than Donald Trump for the criminal indictment of January 6th because I believe that they will charge him with at least one conspiracy charge, which is also what they did in the classified documents case. They brought conspiracy to obstruct, and that's how they roped in this poor uh, Walt, Walt Nauta. So they're going to have to have co-conspirators, conspirators with Donald Trump for January 6th. And it very well could be people like Rudy Giuliani or John Eastman. Um, you know, it could be White House aides. There's been rumblings about what Mark Meadows has been up to, the chief of staff, if he's cooperating in some capacity or he will be charged. Uh, you had Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, who the FBI snatched his cell phone right out of his hand the day after the Mar-a-Lago raid, took an imprint of the data from his cell phone and now has that and there's court wranglings about access to what he had on his phone so this could be even this could be even more major than just uh, another uh, criminal indictment of donald trump but it could involve half a dozen up to a dozen people julie kelly everybody subscribe to her Substack, declassified with julie kelly uh, julie appreciate you being with us thanks buck have a great weekend There's some bona fide patriots looking after your good health over at Chalk. This is the nutritional supplement company based in Texas, creating products to maximize your energy so you can enjoy life. They offer a wide range of products, but two bundles in particular are grabbing the attention of this audience. They're male and female vitality stacks. Both are a combination of natural ingredients carefully selected to benefit your overall health. The male vitality stack includes a leading superfood ingredient, 
proven to replenish diminished amount diminished amounts of testosterone in a guy's body. You need that for energy, drive, and focus. The female vitality stack is formulated to provide improved hormone health. Both are chock full of goodness. You can find them online now online now at chalk.com. That's C H O Q dot com. That's how it's spelled. Get thirty five percent off any chalk subscription for life when you use my name Buck in your purchase process. That's chalk C H O Q dot com. Use the name Buck for thirty five percent off. Download and use the new Clay and Buck app. Listen to the program live. Catch up on any part of the show you might have missed. Find every podcast as they're released and listen. Find the Clay and Buck app in your app store and make it part of your day. We are joined now by Heather McDonald. She is fabulous when it comes to sharing data that make other people uncomfortable. And I think it's important because facts matter and you can't solve problems without being willing to acknowledge what the facts show. And Heather, we appreciate you being on the program before to discuss all of this. And you have looked at the facts once more. And Buck and I have discussed this in some degree, but we haven't gone into the, the detail. But uh, a lot of discussion about the affirmative action case from the Supreme Court, which ended the use of race in college and university admissions, at least in theory, because of discrimination against Asian people. And there are actually really interesting and fascinating studies that have been done into affirmative action, Heather, and you can lay out these studies and what the data actually reflects that show that when you are admitted to a school that academically you would not be admitted to but for your race, the results are actually worse than if you went to a school where your academic profile more accurately matched the school to which you were admitted. Explain. That's absolutely right. You, uh, we would have more black students graduating in STEM fields without racial preferences because they would go to schools where they go on the same conditions as every other student. They're admitted to schools for which they are academically qualified rather than being catapulted into schools for which they are not academically qualified. So there was a very good study done at Duke University that found that contrary to what one might expect, more black male freshmen enrolled at Duke intending to major in STEM, but by the end of the senior year, there were very few black male STEM majors. Why? Because the black students had been admitted with over a standard deviation below those of their what in, in uh, SAT scores compared to white and Asians, and they struggled in their STEM classes. It was pitched at a level for which they were not prepared and so they all ended up switching out of those STEM majors and going into black studies and whatnot. Uh, and we know that in law schools, which is the best uh, set of data we have on objective test score measures, at the end of the first year of law school, black students who are almost universally admitted to law schools with racial preferences, 52% of all black law students nationwide end up in the bottom 10th of their law school class after their first year, and uh, about two-thirds end up at the bottom 25% of their schools. Had they been admitted to schools for which they were qualified, they would have succeeded. And let's take this out of the difficult issue of race, and let's look at sex, and let's imagine that MIT admitted me because it needed more sex parity or gender parity, which, of course, they do, and which is a complete irrelevancy. Sex is not relevant to whether you are turning out good engineers or not. But let's say they admitted me with 650 on my math SAT on an 800-point scale, and all of my colleagues who had been admitted because they were actually qualified for MIT, unlike me, who was not qualified, I would be among students with 800s on their math SATs. What would happen in my freshman calculus class? I would struggle. I would not be able to keep up. I may decide that MIT was not for me, and what would happen is I would be surrounded by this hornet swarm of diversity consultants that would come and say to me, well, you're the victim of rape culture. You're in a misogynist culture. That's why you're not succeeding. That's why you feel uncomfortable here. That's what happens to black students. 
They yes, I mean the calculus is sexist. Obviously, that's the that's the real challenge that you're setting up there. If we were to extrapolate <laughs> this all the way, we're speaking to uh, Heather McDonald, author of the War on Cops, and she's got an article out. Affirmative action was hurting black students. It's in the Spectator. Uh, Heather, what do we know about the the way this has played out with something that you know you want a good lawyer, right? I mean, you know, just talk to Hunter Biden. Like you want to have a good lawyer. But you really want to have a good doctor. Um, <laughs> you really want to have the best possible heart surgeon. What do we know about the way the MCAT, which is the standardized test for medical school, have been changed or, or not, not changed the test, but, you know, they've changed the standards based on affirmative action in the past. Well, black students are being admitted to medical schools with, with MCAT scores and GPAs from college that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by whites or Asians. And as predicted by this mismatch theory, they end up at the bottom of their class. And so what we're now doing is changing the standards for licensing doctors. After the second year of medical school, students take, medical students take something called step one of the U.S. medical licensing exam. That used to be a graded test, and it would be used by uh, hospital residencies to select their residents. Because black students scored so poorly on the uh, step one exam, again, predictably, because they've all been catapulted into schools for which they are not competitively qualified, the uh, licensing board decided to get rid of scores on step one and just go to a pass-fail basis so that residencies selecting their residents would not know uh, how students rank. And the pressure is now on, of course, to change step one, step two, and pressure is on. We are already getting rid of uh, the traditional standards for medical society, honor societies, uh, moving away from academic achievement into community involvement, which basically means you're agitating for more racial preferences in medical schools or, or more racial hiring in, in medical faculty I, as a student. You know, Heather, I know you're up on this, too. In the recent affirmative action decision that came down, um, Justice, uh, Justice Jackson had this, had this line about how, I think it was a, a black baby is... Uh, has double the survival rate if that baby has a black doctor delivering it versus a white doctor. Do you know the, the passage I'm talking about? Yes, and it was completely misread. The study itself was wrong, and, and she misread the study. It's preposterous. This is, a, this is a topic that is really taboo to study, but I was recently told about a health economist at Harvard who figured out a way to come up with some randomized control sample to see how people with heart attacks that were driving on the roads did uh, in, in hospitals and managed to correlate it to race of doctors, and the results were so damning that the guy didn't publish the paper because he knew that if he did, uh, his career would be over. And uh, so it just goes to show, you know, either we really do not believe that there's such a thing as academic merit and that it's actually possible that there's some people that actually know calculus, and I don't. There's some people who actually understand physics, and I don't. If we don't believe that, then yes, let's get rid of all testing. Let's just admit students based on a lottery. You know, if the schools really believe this, they're, they're complete hypocrites. They, they, they take absolutely contradictory positions that on the one hand, oh, well, we don't really want to pay too much attention to scores. On the other hand, uh, they continue to do so, but if they really didn't believe that, that scores matter, they should just admit students by lottery. Uh, but, of course, it does matter. We all experience there's people who are better at academic tasks than others, and those are the ones that we, we should be selecting, as you say, for our doctors, for our pilots. And right now, everywhere we look, race is trumping merit. And we have decided as a society that we would rather have diversity than meritocracy because at present you can't have both. The academic skills gap is so great that any time an institution proudly proclaims we are pursuing diversity, here's how you uncode that statement. It means we have jettisoned meritocracy. I think this is also important, Julie. I wanted to circle back to the first bit of information you were sharing, that Duke study. Uh, sorry, Heather. Julie's coming up next. Uh, Heather, that first study that you uh, that you shared with us, what you're saying, I think this is so important, and I want to hammer it home, 
is if you are a black kid who's admitted, let's say, to Duke, and you go in thinking, hey, I did pretty well, I want to be a doctor, and you go in, or scientist, and you go into that first-year biology class, and you get a D because you are going head-to-head with the most supremely talented kids who all want to be doctors, right? There's a huge percentage of kids that go into Duke thinking, I want to be a doctor. And then you get the cold, hard slap of reality in physics, or you get it in high-level biology, and you end up dropping back, and you're a major in some soft social sciences because it's harder to get exposed. I think this is true, and I was a history major. I think it's harder to get exposed in history or English which is why a lot of you out there ended up history or English majors like me, than you would if you went into a hard science or a hard math. But if that kid had not gone to Duke, let's say instead, and I'm not trying to take a shot here, but let's say that kid who goes to Duke instead goes to NC State, he might end up a doctor because the quality of of the class in math and science, the difficulty of it, is better matched with his or her academic. I think that's so key. You're actually penalizing the kid, and he's not achieving what he otherwise would have by going to a school that's so far above his academic ability. It's an absolutely cruel and heartless and self-involved policy on the part of these academic administrators that are determined to look out on their faces, you know, their, their suitably diverse faces. It's putting black students at a disadvantage. It is subjecting them to psychological stress. And the real key here is that this whole discourse is so nauseatingly elitist. The heads of Harvard and Yale and UC Berkeley all say, well, where will we get the future leaders of tomorrow if, if we can't have racial affirmative action that, that, that catapults black students into art schools who are not prepared? The idea is, is that if they do go to North Carolina State University or UC Riverside or UC Santa Cruz or Irvine, that that's just the end of the world. They can't possibly compete. They can't possibly become leaders. That's just a lie. And the mystery in this whole debate is why these colleges that are not the name brand Ivy Leagues haven't stood up for themselves and said, um, excuse me, if students go to my school, they will be just as prepared to go to medical school or law school. They will be just as prepared to be leaders in their community. We offer a completely sound and excellent education but we're all supposed to believe that if if it's the end of the world for black students to go to a school for which they are academically matched with thousands and thousands of other white and asian and hispanic students why should any student suffer that disability why don't we shut down north carolina state university bates college you know you name it uh... north carolina any of them Cal, all the whole California State University system, shut them all down because it's the end of the world for somebody who goes there and so that everybody can go to Harvard and Yale. Excellent point. Heather McDonald, everybody, check out her piece in The Spectator on how affirmative action was hurting black students. Heather, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Clayton Buck. Look, this could, this could go down as the worst government power grab in history. According to brilliant economist and author Dr. Nomi Prinz, our financial system could soon spiral into chaos. She's speaking about a dangerous new program put forward by the Biden administration. This isn't about banning gas-powered cars, but about a total ban on cash itself. She sees the launch of a new technology called FedNow. It's an attack on our cash, according to Dr. Prince, and also an attack on your privacy. may well affect your ability to spend your money when and how you see fit. Soon, something as simple as buying a cup of coffee may cause an alarm at the IRS. Huge changes are coming this summer, starting as early as this month, July. You should get the facts, and you should do so at a specially built website with a lot of information. The website address is disappearingdollar.com. Again, that's disappearingdollar.com. Go there now. Paid for by Rogue Economics. Get to know the guys outside the issues. Sunday Hang with Clay and Buck, a new podcast. Find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. We 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it it would have been been juicy. It would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, is that, is that my baggage? look like my baggage. I mean, I know... Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to tell you some exciting news before we dive into our next topic, which will be a a little bit of commentary from The View we want to get into um, coming up here. And also, RFK Jr. and I agree on something else. Very happy to hear him say it. That's come up in a moment. First up, though, starting Monday, the 10th of July, we are going to be, Clay and Buck, this show, we're going to be on the airwaves in our nation's capital. That's right. We're going to be carried in D.C. on Freedom 104.7. We are so excited to expand our radio affiliate family to Freedom 104.7 in Washington, D.C., but for anybody who's you know, works on Capitol Hill or the federal government, commutes in and out of D.C. proper. Uh, we're going to be able to keep you, well, certainly company during your lunchtime and uh, and thereafter every day. So definitely tune in and, and check us out there. Uh, we're really excited about that. So Clay yeah, and I have both big, lived in. We've big, both been D.C. residents. Yeah, it's a big market, big addition. So if you are in northern Virginia, if you are in uh, southern Maryland, Buck, you know because you live there. One of the worst traffic cities in America. Uh, And for anybody who has to commute, I know you probably, if you're in the D.C. area, have been listening to us. Uh, If you're listening to us now, you've been on the iHeartRadio app, which we love, or you've been downloading the podcast. But it is a big deal to be on in D.C. market from 12 to 3 FM 104.7 Freedom Radio there. It's going to be awesome. So uh, go ahead and add us to the dials if you are in that marketplace. And we got a lot of new market additions that we're going to be rolling out in the days and weeks and months ahead. Uh, we talked about, I think, Monday of this week, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, and South Dakota. Was it Pierre, South Dakota? I think it was uh, that we had added, and uh, and certainly a bunch more coming. That's a credit to you guys, the growth of the show. Uh, as we now embark on we just the third year, added of the Sioux program. Falls. Is that what you're talking about? Sioux Falls. My bad. I hope we're on in Pierre, South Dakota, or uh, it's where Pier, my grandfather Dakota- was allegedly born. I've never. This is like family lore, you know. It's tough to sometimes track this stuff down for sure, but we believe he was born in uh, 
Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I got to be careful here because this is where I always I've I've had a ongoing uh, uh, inability to distinguish um, between North and South Dakota, and I know right now in the Dakotas people are losing their minds. Uh, but yes, Pierre, South Dakota. You know, I always had pronounced it Pierre. Did you know that, Buck? It's pronounced Pierre. Well, I'm, why not just say yes? Because you know I'm on the spot here. <laughs> I did, no, I did not I didn't know, know that. I had I had South Dakota furious because I was like when I was doing sports talk radio, we added an affiliate, and what I thought was Pierre, South Dakota. I was talking about how excited I was to add it. And I, they, the, the good people right. of Pierre, South Dakota, let me know. I, I had no idea. I memorized state capitals back in the day. I've been saying it wrong for 30 even years. regionally. You know, for out in Long Island, there are some stops on the uh, LIRR, some towns that I've spent time in in the past. And you know, you can read it, and you'll say, "Oh, Ronkonkoma," but actually, it's Ronkonkoma. That's how you got to say it, or Patchog. You know, so it's it's a local. There's local flavor to some of these things. One that I know is absolutely the case. The variations, and we're, we're number one in this city, so I should make sure that I, I get it as right as I can. The variations on the town that I grew up in New York hearing of as Louisville. Yes. Is fascinating. There's a lot of, a lot of different ways. There's, you know, Louisville and, you know, I can't even do them all. There's a lot of different I, stuff. I'm a yeah, I'm a Louisville person. Um is the way that I always pronounce it. Obviously southern accents factor in. You're talking about the great state of Kentucky right now. One of my favorites is when it's a city that is named after a a city. So there is outside of Lexington, Kentucky, where we're also on a great town called Versailles, Kentucky. Yes. If you're sitting out there and you're like, "Oh, I wonder how that's spelled." It's named after the French palace Versailles. But if you pronounce Versailles, Kentucky, you will be absolutely ridiculed to the height of, and they'll have no idea what you're talking about. It's Versailles, Kentucky. Versailles is the palace, even though it was named yeah. after the palace Versailles. Yeah. Notre Dame is the cathedral. Notre Dame is That's the, right. That's a good is one. Big Ten, is that right? Big no. Ten, right? No. No. Damn it. I actually no. thought I had that one. That's a t- that, to be fair to you, that's a tough one on sports because Notre Dame should be in the Big Ten. They're independent. They're not a member of any conference. Oh, that's a trick. Uh, that's a. That, that's, I agree. That's what I'm saying. It's a. It's kind of like I'm a, going out to South Bend this fall, so I'm putting in my South Bend time. It's, it's a little bit buck like there. what I always thought was really unfair when you took a test back in the day, and one of the answer choices was none of the above. You're like. And you know how much confidence you have to be to have in the answer to go none of the above? I always felt like that was an unfair teaching move to really kind of taunt you to go with the none of the above as the multiple choice answer question. Absolutely. Oh, I'd mentioned the view and, and we were talking with Heather McDonald a few moments ago in the last hour about uh, affirmative action and where it stands now. And I thought this was very, uh, illuminating soundbite from the view where they do very astute constitutional and legal analysis on a daily basis i mean joy behar could practically sit on the supreme court herself um but here we go here is the sense you get from sunny hostin of the view about affirmative action play it the lived experience of uh, a white kid in Appalachia or perhaps on a potato farm in uh, Idaho or Brooklyn Brooklyn, is different in this country for a black student, whether that black student be wealthy or not, because this country was founded on slavery. Ah, now this is very interesting because you've been hearing this adversity scores. Let's talk about adversity scores. Once you start to dig into the real numbers and look at what's really going on, what you find is that a lot of these schools, you, you know, there's been all this talk about legacies. There have been multiple generations now of affirmative action school attendees at the most elite schools. Their children get legacy too, obviously, right? And the benefit of affirmative action on top of legacy admissions. So if you attack legacy admissions, it's not as clear as some people want to think it is that it's just going to go after like the up, you know, uh, upper class or upper middle class, um, white and Asian students. But even beyond that, so we are to believe that to be wealthy and black in America is still a, this is what she is saying. She's arguing that that is still such a disadvantage so that 
a wealthy black student applicant to Harvard should get to go, you know, say if, uh, the, you know, father or mother works in uh, media or makes millions and millions of dollars, should get to go to Harvard over a kid who, you know, grew up in a single parent household who has been trying to help raise his three or four siblings who is white from a low income household. That That is the belief of the elites as you just heard from Sonny Hostin. Yeah, and this is where I think all of you out there would agree. If I gave you an option, okay, there's a, a binary choice. You can either be the son or daughter of a white family growing up in Appalachia, right? Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, Tennessee, an area where there is not a lot of opportunity, and your parents make a combined income of $30,000 a year, okay? You have that option, but you can be white. Or you can be the son or daughter of multimillionaire black parents. Is there anyone who's saying, from a pure advantage perspective, being a white poor kid cancels out being a black rich kid? I don't think there's anybody out there in America who is being honest, Buck, that would say, yes, being white is worth me being not a multimillionaire. That's the test, right? That's what Sonny's really arguing. And if she were on here and if she actually had to answer honest questions, because that's the challenge that we have in media today, people like Sonny Hostin get to talk to an audience of stupid people and say things that are profoundly dishonest that they wouldn't even be able to make the case for. Like you or I, if we went on The View, would say the exact same thing that we say on this show, and people could agree or disagree with it, and they could quiz us on it, and we would defend our position. Sonny Hostin won't come on this show. And if she did, if I just asked her that question, so wait, you're telling me that a poor white kid in West Virginia whose parents make a combined $30,000 a year is more advantaged than your kids are who are now the son and daughter of multimillionaires. I think we can even be more blatant. The poor kid in, let's say, Harlan County, Kentucky, which is one of the per capita poorest counties in the entire United States and overwhelmingly white, a poor kid from Harlan County, Kentucky, his white privilege is so magical, so powerful, uh, powerful, so profound that it is more advantageous for him in life in America than, let's say, a black uh you know young man who's black who grows up in new york city and has an investment banker father and uh you know a school president mother or something and you know with a with a combined household income of you know two million dollars a year yeah that that harvard should take the latter candidate over the former because his white privilege is that powerful that is delusional delusional And I'll give you an example from my own life, Buck. You mentioned Harlan County, Kentucky. All of the Travis family, I'm not even sure if we're on here. If we are, blow me up and let me know on Twitter. All of the Travis families from Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. That is southern Kentucky, still not a super wealthy community to this day. My grandfather, who I was named after, had an eighth grade education, dropped out of school, went to work in the mines in this area of Kentucky, where there's lots of white people, decided that he didn't want to work the rest of his life in the mines because his father died of black lung disease and came down to Nashville and spent the rest of his life working in the DuPont factory in Old Hickory, Tennessee. I don't think that he had a massive amount of white privilege. That's not even speaking today, Buck. That's speaking 100 years ago. He was born in 1905. He, his dad died of black lung disease. He tried to avoid dying of black lung disease and worked in a factory his well, whole life. I'm not I'm pretty confident that there wasn't yeah. a great deal of white privilege in Muhlenberg County, Kentucky for his entire life. That's a hundred years ago, not even today. You think about the way these schools also have been doing admissions up to this point. They will, for all intents and purposes, treat the, uh, you know, and there are, you know, I I went to school with some of these kids when I, when we were kids, when we were younger. Yep. So I know I've seen this. 
a multimillionaire black student from Africa, you know, uh, the son of a senior official for a, a Nigerian oil, you know, oil company, for example, yep. or the son of a and the guy, you know, someone who owns like some of the biggest malls in Kenya or, you know, some of these that student who yes. arrives at Harvard is treated as a student that goes in the diversity category of look at how diverse we are because we have a black student. Now, you could say, okay, that is the racial diversity you're talking about. What is the adversity there? If we're now going to do adversity score, someone explain that to me. And beyond that, Buck, beyond the adversity score, also the point of affirmative action is to deal with a legacy of slavery. If no, but you it, it applies as you Africa, know to, you never yeah. were a slave in the United you have no ancestors who were slaves in the United Absolutely. States. In fact, you might have actually been a part of the African slave trade and that your ancestors might have sold slaves to America because everybody doesn't even want to talk about the fact that the first time people were captives and became slaves was actually from one African tribe to another. They were selling their enemies into slavery in the United States, pocketing the money. There's no legacy of slavery for someone who has arrived from Nigeria or from Kenya and is now profiting off of affirmative action. It is a the admissions, and also it's true in hiring, it is a racial spoils system. And now we're also seeing increasingly it is a... Um, you know, victimized category spoil system, as in if you are transgender or non-binary or cisgender or whatever, that's also taken into account here. Um, there is a Latino advantage in admission ba based on what? Based on lack of representation, they would say, well, you'd say, hold on a second. That's a quota. And we've all agreed from the very beginning of this, going all the way back to the Supreme Court case, Backey, that quotas are wrong. Well, you know what we've just had all along here, everyone? This is what we've seen. You've had decades of stealth quotas of these institutions having quotas in place and just lying about it. That's all it is. Saying that they were dealing with racism by committing more racism. That's all it is. That's what they've done. Yes. And, you know, now we'll see if, because the whole adversity score thing I find fascinating, Clay, if you've overcome the adversity in terms of getting into Harvard, you know, your, your, your applications before the admissions committee. This person, because of their overcoming of adversity, we should bring them in. Did they overcome? If they overcame the adversity, why do they need a leg up on everybody else on the other, you know, 80,000 students who are applying? You know, overcome adversity. And, and why? Okay. You say oh, they're the first in their family to go to college or something. You'd sit there and say, all right. Not, I don't want to say NC State again, but we all know, you know, what about an excellent state school? Oh, that's not that's not good enough for a student whose grades reflect that's exactly where he or she should go. Why? Yeah. These are the questions that this is why on this. Look, man, affirmative action is one of the first things that made me realize I'm a conservative. I remember this when I was in high school. I was like, because I saw I saw kids who were first generation, particularly was the first generation Asian immigrants, parents speaking no English, and they were just doing phenomenally well in class and getting incredible SATs. And they were looking at schools that were substantially ranked below the black and Latino students in my class, whom I knew, and I knew their grades, and I even knew some of their SATs. It was unjust. It was unjust. Yeah. People can say whatever they want about it. It wasn't right. All right, look, you know a company's looking out for you when they upgrade your service and don't charge for it. That's great news for new and current Pure Talk customers. Pure Talk just added data to every plan and is including a mobile hotspot with each one with no price increase whatsoever. Their plan is just $20 a month for unlimited talk, text, and now 50% more 5G data plus mobile hotspot. That's a great value for $20 a month. That's why we love this company. Pure Talk, who also happen to be veteran-owned, only hires the best customer service team right here in the USA. Most families are saving almost $1,000 a year while enjoying the most dependable 5G network in America. Dial pound 250, say Clay and Buck, make the switch to Pure Talk. You'll save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, that's pound 250, say Clay and Buck, and make the switch today to Pure Talk. Inspiring you to seek out the truth. The Clay, Travis, and Buck Sexton Show.
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 